This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. My guest's passion for fighting social inequality led him to leverage his 35 years of enterprise technology experience to create a solution to help level the playing field while also delivering technology solutions for the world's most important causes. Link Kroger is the president of Nightmoves, a limiting profit company creating the next generation of elite technology professionals through extensive training in technology disciplines with an intentional focus on including Native Americans and rural and urban underserved communities. In this episode, we'll discuss the problem Nightmoves is solving in rural and marginalized communities, how digital innovation can solve social problems, bridging the digital divide and advancing racial and place equity through digital access. He also has some thoughts about funding as it relates to government grants, and we'll ask him to share his thoughts on that as well. Link, welcome to the WTF podcast. Hi, I'm so excited to be on. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. So let's get into it by telling me what night moves, what problem are you solving, and how is what you're doing unique from other coding camps? Yeah. So, you know, I've been in the uh, the tech industry, like your intro said, for 35 years, worked for, you know, either worked at or consulted at a lot of from Fortune 500 to startups in those 35 years, mostly in the tech space. But, you know, I always felt like companies, we had a lot of priority and emphasis on diversity and inclusion, but we really weren't doing a good job of it. It was mostly how are you removing people between companies versus adding diversity, um, you know, diverse, diverse talent. So that's what Night Moves really is, is, okay, how do we really go cultivate and get young people into tech and then bring them through an education and training pathway where they're better prepared than going to college, but they come out with no debt. And the feedback from companies is phenomenal because we'll get feedback like, you know, hiring your graduate saves us twenty-five to thirty-five thousand dollars over hiring a four-year computer science graduate because they're just so much better prepared. And so, I never sell to companies that, hey, this is an underserved program, right? I sell we produce better talent, and um, you know that's really the the piece that we do is is producing the talent that the industry needs and doing it with the people that need the help the most. And getting people in younger, right? Because that's really the what you have to do is is get people in younger. So tell me about your intentional focus on the Native American and other underserved populations and making sure that they're not left behind in this digital age and that you're helping to bridge that digital divide that exists between rural and urban spaces. Yeah. And, you know, it's very different working like in an inner city urban area to a Native American community to a rural community. So really one of our core strengths is we listen, right? We don't make assumptions. We don't go in or we're never the one to be the savior of the community. We come in, we listen. I mean, we know how to we know how to educate people in technology. We know how to bring employers to the table. But when it comes to the needs of the community, it's, it's we really need to hear the voices from the community. And what Native American uh, communities have shared with us is, you know, if, if, you, if you ever, and have you ever visited a Native American community, by the way, just, just, just a quick question for you. I have. I went once many, many years ago. I was doing an evaluation for the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation early, 
right out of college, my first job with the Howard Samuels State Management Policy Center out of CUNY in New York. And one of their grantees was an Indian, a Native American organization. And we went to their annual conference in Tempe, Arizona. Well, excellent. Yeah. Well, you know, most Native American reservations are out in the middle of nowhere, right? So they're they're far out there. But, the, you know, the challenge they have is what they've shared with us is, you know, there's like 374 tribes in the country, right? There's And each of those tribes, uh, while we generalize and consider Native Americans Native Americans a lot of times, right? It's, you know, if you're Sac and Fox or Kiowa or Cheyenne or Sioux. They're right, separate or, nations. Yeah, they're, yes, yeah, say we're a different people group, right? Yes, exactly. And they'd be like, well, you know, Link, you got to realize there's only 4,000 of us left on the planet out here in the middle of nowhere. If our kids leave and go to college, um, they don't come back. So that's not something that's easy for us to encourage because we want a better future for them. But then if they stay, you know, what are they going to do? You know, what's their future? Is it the casino? Is it a gas station? So what Native American communities really love about our program is we're not just an education program, right? We're, we're, we are local in that community, but then we bring employers to them that, that support inclusion of working from anywhere, right? So we're an employer and the training in the box from everything they need soup to nuts, right? We can do everything starting right around the sophomore, junior high school. We provide the full three-year pathway form, which is your question earlier I didn't answer is what's the difference with your program and a code camp? Well, code camps are generally four to six months long. Ours is probably going to be three years on average long because we're starting in that usually the junior year in high school. But you're getting three years of training and education versus four to six months. So the the amount you absorb and are able to learn over three years, you can't compare to what somebody can cram in four to six months, right? So that's the, and we're not necessarily either just formal, we're not classroom training. Um, about half of our program is all experiential learning where they just create solutions of real world to go in production. So I kind of combined two different answers for you there, but Hopefully that answered your question. So we know that there's a lot of changes happening in the economy. And there's always been in lots of different societies, push and pull factors, pushing people from rural areas into more urban areas. In my day job, I work in international development and we are solving lots of sticky social problems. And digital is one of them. And most of my work is centered in Africa and you see a lot of that with the digital divide as well between rural and urban. There's always that push from the rural over rural areas because of poverty into urban areas, young people in particular looking for jobs. And the idea of bringing jobs to those rural areas is an interesting one to help curb that migration and to create more opportunities in rural areas to become more hubs for for technical innovation. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. And, you know, so let's just talk about the the positives for society, right? Of, you know, stopping the forcing of all the migration from rural communities to urban or urbanization, right? Is one, you know, pollution, you have, you know, people are more um, dispersed. So when things like COVID come along, you're further apart, right? So not having everybody in the, in the people groups, not having the long commute times, right? The more dense you do it, 
and you know, just in practically the, the cost of our talent in the country, if it's more spread out, you know, and in cheaper areas, there's less offshoring because we have more, you know, onshore, nearshore options that, that are, you know, lower costing options because the standard of living is lower. Um, but then you look at, you know, just not look at the money and the math. We're, we're forcing people to leave their families and their communities because we're saying these opportunities can't be there for you. You have to move to get them. So why are we just accepting? I mean, it's really a form of discrimination, right? To say, well, for the last two years, everybody could work remote, especially in tech industry. And now that COVID's over, you have to live in the city, which by the way, we're not seeing that in tech like we are in other industries of forcing people back to work. Right. But, but, you know, that's just crazy. We'd say, you have to be forced back to work. Yeah, not back to work, back to the office. We've, yeah, we've been working. Thank you. Yes. Good, good point. Yes. Yeah, to, to force that relocation, though. But but I'd say still, you know, ongoing, it's um, about 75% of the computer science type jobs are probably remote forever now. Um, that That's that's sticking. And, and then there's so much shortage. You know, there's approximately 1.4 million shortage of workers in computer science. So they're also even even in this economic downturn, you're still seeing more computer science job postings, right? So um, you know they can kind of dictate that hey, we like working remote, and this is we don't like sitting in a car for an hour and a half, two hours a day, and burning up gas and putting pollutants in the air. Let's talk about what having these types of more higher paying jobs within more marginalized communities mean for economic advancement. And we also know that there is a racial component to the divide as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And, and, you know, we've talked mostly about rural and Native Americans so far, but, you know, the ability for minorities and immigrants and, you know, low-income populations in urban areas, there's there's a lot of larger cities in this country that there aren't jobs local. I mean, Springfield, Illinois is a great example, right? Um, uh, a black population that represents most of the poverty in the city, but there's not a tech job base there and there's not a tech education base there. So going to these communities, uh, Dunn, North Carolina, rural town, 50 over 50% black population. So, you know, even, um, you know, when we think about areas of, of underserved communities, sure, you know, Chicago, Philadelphia, right, St. Louis, these areas all come to mind. I mean, you can think of any big city, right, Oakland, that, that we've got to be making more progress in. But but for Night Moves, the core is we do it from within the community, right? It's not some suburb thing that people go to. We want to be in the specific communities, like in North St. Louis, right, in those communities that are close to the people. Uh, and, and just a short note is, you know, um, the rural and Native American is easy for us in a natural fit because there's really not a lot of competition. But when we start working in a city, they'll say, well, we don't need another company, you know, another organization coming in. We already have one or two that are focused on this. And I'll say, OK, well, let's just say we went through and knocked on, you know, 100 doors in Ferguson. Right. And said, hey, do you know about, you know, this opportunity that exists over here? What percentage would say they even know about it? And what percentage would say it's for them? And they said, well, that's a great question. We have no idea. I said, okay, so this is where competition is good, where you don't just say we have one or two providers because 
look at their campuses and how they do this. They're still in the suburbs or, you know, typically not even in these neighborhoods and recruiting in them. Right. And, and that's the, that's really a big differentiator of what, how we approach the urban areas. So tell me more about your work in urban areas. Where are some of the places that Night Moves is doing work in urban areas? Well, we're, we're definitely more in the rural and Native American areas. We're working to implement right now in North Omaha. There's a, there's an area there where um, there's two high schools with a greater than 50% African-American male, uh, male non-graduation rate from high school, right? So how do we get in and reverse that? Uh, North St. Louis, and um, we're, so it takes generally about two years to get into a community is what we're finding because there's just so many aspects you have to go through. So um, Des Moines is the only area now, which is not a big metropolitan that we're actually working in, um, but looking at expanding that. And this is the entrepreneurial area. And um, I know show and that's and uh, Night Moves is still definitely in that startup phase of, of getting this expanded nationally. I'm speaking with Lynn Kroger, the president of Night Moves, who is creating the next generation of elite technology professionals with an intentional focus on rural, urban and underserved communities. We've been talking about the potential for also bridging the economic gap by bringing higher paying jobs to marginalized communities and the potential for that to change the economic landscape of those communities. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Tell me more what what you're looking for there. No, in terms of, well, oftentimes... In certain marginalized communities, the jobs that are available are oftentimes more lower wage jobs. They're not tech jobs that are higher paid. And once, let's say someone who might be first generation, whatever it is, (laughs) high school grad or whatever, might be able to get into a tech job that would pay them more than minimum wage. And what that could mean to turn around that whole family dynamic and how that could keep young people in particular in urban areas away from let's say more illicit opportunities for making money to a more legal way of making money and changing their lives. Yeah. So, um, so if you think about, right, someone graduating our program is probably going to be 19, maybe 20 years old. Uh, By the time they finish all three phases of our, of our program, they'll have no debt and they'll start making between 60 and 70,000 a year. So if you think about our focus, in these, and we're very community focused. So, and by that, I mean, we want to be creating 15 to 30 jobs a year, every year in those communities. So if you look at like an, um, an inner city neighborhood, right. That's, that's, that's revitalizing. Usually it's outside people coming in with money, putting money into that environment. And the people that are there are getting pushed out. We want to do the opposite of that, right. Of taking the people in those neighborhoods getting them a debt-free start and starting in that 60 to 70,000 range and then transforming, um, you know, the community from within. No, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. The opportunities that having access to higher paying wages can do to transform those communities and keep people in place so that they don't get pushed out. It's a different type of migration, right? (laughs) Where you're being forced out when opportunities are coming that you cannot be a part of or capitalize on. So let's talk a little bit about the potential for technology to promote social innovation. 
Yeah, so our our so we have um, seven foundation courses that students take like as a prerequisite program and they can take them through us. They can take them through a community college uh, if there is a local community college. Um, but after that, then they have a full time six month program they go through. And during that training, all they're doing is creating solutions that are innovative solutions that support a nonprofit cause. So think of homelessness or drug addiction or sex trafficking or, you know, any 501c3 cause. They would be working with real users, right, real people impacted, and everything they create goes into production. So that the so imagine if we have, um, we're working right now in a community where um, they're, we're looking at a grant that would create 300 people a year in that city coming through our program. And so during that six-month phase, that, that's 150 years of effort going into social innovation to create, instead of Ubers and Airbnbs and Amazon technology, right, we'd be creating technology to multiply the impacts of our nonprofits and to, and to implement new social technology, you know, platforms that would, you know, how much money do you see really getting invested in the space of social innovation and to nonprofit causes, right? Not that much. And that, frankly, is one of the reasons that young people really enjoy our program is because they, it's kind of the green piece of technology, right, where you get to come in, contribute towards society, make a difference, and then that's where you learn your, your real-world skills, you know, scalability and security and all the modern aspects of how do you actually – you've actually built it because in the end, employers would rather hire someone that's demonstrated they could do the job than just finish their education, right? And that's what we're doing is, all right, you've had your seven computer science courses. Now you get six months experience in mentoring and development of building enterprise class solutions, but for benefiting the public cause of, of social innovation, right, in, in these areas. So this is a great segue into my final question around federal grants and foundation nonprofit funding and why you think it stifles social innovation. Yeah. Um, so Night Moves actually started as a nonprofit and now it's recently converted to a limiting profit. And limiting profit means it only has to make a dollar a year, but there's no IRS regulations over, you know, a limiting profit organization or a social benefiting organization. But this was my my big discovery is, you know, I mean, I come from you know, well-funded Fortune 500, right, um, or even well-funded startup areas, and it was my first venture into the nonprofit world. And uh, there were so many people who would, you know, talk to our, you know, talk to a graduate or see our program and go, "This is amazing." And I would get all of these meetings with these major foundations, you know, big, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they all have the same checklist of questions they ask you, and one of them is. Have you um, have you been operating for at least four years, minimally two years? And I say, no, it's a startup, right? It's entrepreneurial. But I ran this commercially at our last company for, you know, we ran it for like seven years successfully within a business, right? And now it's just flipping out and running it the same structure as a nonprofit. And they all say the same thing that, oh, if you haven't been in you know operation for four years, then we can't even consider you. And I'd say, well, let me ask you something. Do you think we've moved the social equity needle much in the last 20 years? I mean, really meaningfully moved it? I've never gotten anybody to say yes. And I go, okay, so if you're saying that any new innovative idea can't get funded, 
how do you ever turn this around? It's kind of like somebody saying, well, I actually have a cure for cancer, but I don't have four years of it. So you can't even get your funding to really launch this, right? Maybe that's a bit of a stretch of a metaphor, but, but the bottom line is if you're bringing innovative ideas into the nonprofit world, unless you know somebody wealthy, you're not going to get it funded or unless you can go crowdsource like 10 bucks at a time. But what we do is millions of dollars. So it's probably 30 major foundations. The only reason they gave us was you've got to be in business for four years before we'll do this. Right. So again, you look at it and you go, there is no innovative way unless you just need $10,000 to do a, uh, you know, to, to, to launch an innovative approach to solving society's problems. And then it's interesting on the federal grant side, because here's the two main funding mechanisms for the nonprofit world is foundations and grants, whether they're state or federal. Well, if you're doing something really transformative, like I said, that, you know, our program is really, it's a three-year pathway to get through it, right? It's not a four, it's not a McDonald's drive-through, right? It's not this four-month quick hit, but you know, those quick hit programs don't create higher paying jobs, right? Because you you're going to create lower paying, lower skilled jobs in a four month time period. But on the federal grant side, they only measure the success on a two to three year scale to say, okay, how many jobs do you create in two to three years? So if you're creating your jobs in year four, you don't meet any of the scoring for federal grants, even though in year four, you blow away all the metrics doesn't matter. So you can't do something transformative that takes more than two years, maybe three, and get federal money. And if you're less than four years old, you can't get foundation money. So you look at it and you go, it's stifled, right? And that's why we flipped and said, forget it, right? I mean, I'm a business person. We'll just do services and fund this ourselves and not get and not get donations. You know, funding is a major, well, grants is a major way for a lot of social enterprises and business enterprises to get funding. And there is quite a conundrum. I mean, with each type of funding that exists, there are some downsides to it, right? And grants are attractive because they don't require equity, like the owner to give up equity. You don't have to pay it back, but you do pay in some way. You know, there are reporting requirements. It's a long, lengthy process. You have to go through these checklists that you talk about and having people on the other side sometimes who just don't really get what you're trying to do if it doesn't fit into that checklist. And that can be really, really challenging. So before we conclude, so you said you flipped it, you're now a limited profit company. So you just do services to fund what you're doing. Talk to me a little bit more so that I can understand what that is. Yeah. So we are a technology consulting company, meaning companies hire us to do the same technology services another firm does. But instead of us taking that money, we don't pay it out in profits. We reinvest the profits into our social benefiting mission of what we do. So, um, and I'll send you a two minute video of an overview of it, but it's, it's, it's very simplistic model, right? Companies that want to support diversity and inclusion that need a, a technology workforce for the future, they buy our services and all of these things just happen. They don't need, they don't need to donate. They don't need to, to spend extra money for their budget. They just need to consider using us as a provider of the same services they were going to buy anyway. And we're not here to, 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 to profit. We're here to sow in society. 
In fact, um, if it's a government grant or working for the state government, we set up, we'll set up everything as just pass through costs, meaning we'll show you our books. There's zero profit, 100% goes back into your communities. And we're just managing, because we know what we're doing, we'll just manage and administer it. Um, we wouldn't even charge an administrative overhead cost for it, just the actual cost of the program. Link, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing what you're doing with Night Moves and how you are working to create better opportunities for young people in rural and marginalized portions of this country and hoping to advance economic equity along the way and using social innovation to do that. To my listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't keep good content to yourself. If you enjoyed this episode when you listen, make sure that you rate, review, and share it with others who would benefit from hearing it. Subscribe to the podcast at its new home on the Alive Podcast Network and follow the podcast on your favorite podcast streaming platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your, your podcast. Follow the podcast on Instagram at where's the funding underscore podcast and on LinkedIn. And also follow me, the host, Michelle J. McKenzie, on LinkedIn. Join me next Friday for another episode.